This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. Elad Naharai is a writer and activist whose work has appeared in The Daily Beast, Forward, The Guardian, Haaretz, and many other outlets. He's had some of the best and most nuanced takes on the Israel-Palestine situation, and he's been an important voice in calling out the rising tide of anti-Semitism. I'm fortunate to have him on the pod today. Elad, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you got started in activism? Sure. So when I was around 20, I was in college and I became really interested in a Hasidic movement called Chabad. And the reason I give that context is because that was a big switching point in my life. Up until that point, I'd been secular, son of immigrants, um, you know, and very always spiritual, but not not like religious. And I found it to be a fascinating movement. I loved so many of their ideas. It also aligned a lot with like the Eastern ideas I'd been learning about. And as I got more into it and integrated more, got married very quickly, had kids and started to live in Brooklyn in the more Hasidic area, I started to see, you know, a lot of kind of like extremist things you tend to hear about Hasidic movements, I was starting to see more and more. In particular, was seeing them be systemic. And up right. to that point, I had been, you know, writing in the community. I'd become kind of known in the community as a writer. And the more that I became concerned about this, the more I wrote about it. And the more I wrote about it, the more I saw these dynamics because I started to get backlash, anger, ostracization, treated like a traitor, that stuff that you tend to hear about being connected to extremism. Right. Yeah. So that was like an interesting, <laughs> interesting is maybe not the right word, but it was a traumatic experience. And one of the big reasons I left was also because I was seeing an increase in extremism due to Trump jumping into the scene and the community being, although they used to vote democratic, becoming much more conservative in their voting and also in their rhetoric. And that as I started to exit the movement, despite all my activism, it was just too much for me to continue it. I moved to Long Beach and to LA, and I spent a lot of time learning about extremism at that point. Learned, you know, read about cults, read about far right movements, and read about you know all these things. And that very quickly segued into more work, which I was doing. I was had always been a marketer, specifically in social media, and I had been tracking anti-Semitism online. And these lessons I was learning about extremism started to like dovetail with what I was learning about anti-Semitism and online anti-Semitism. So really that kind of all combined into the kind of work that I do today, which is largely around anti-Semitism, extremism, and very often how tech is a part of that. 
Right, right. And you've you've had, in my opinion, some of the best takes and commentary on the whole Israel-Palestine situation that's going on now. Seems like you're one of the few people that can simultaneously recognize the humanity on both sides of this conflict, which really seems rare, unfortunately, because <laughs> people just want their good guy, bad guy narrative out there. And the situation, as you know, is so much more nuanced and complicated. Why do you think we have such a hard time grasping nuanced situations like this as a society? That's a really good question. You know, I... I... You know, what's interesting, I used to get, I get comments sometimes on my stuff um, saying like, you know, I really appreciate your nuance and that kind of thing. And one of the responses um, I give, and I, I do think, of course, nuance is a big part of it, but very often the response I give is, um, especially when it comes to, for example, the topic you're describing, which is seeing the value of life and innocent life in particular between Palestinians and Israelis. To me, that's actually a black and white issue. And not a nuanced issue. And actually what upsets me is hearing, you know, kind of justifications or rationalizations or any form of logic really. <laughs> like, right. like they're kind of like presuppositions and assumptions we make about the world that we live in. And I think when we start to rationalize the killing, even if you feel like I, I personally don't feel like the war is justified, but let's say you feel the war is justified. I think the vast majority of the people that I see supporting war in general, not just this war, find a way to rationalize the tragedy of the loss of life. And to me, that's an indication that the support for the war is in some way at the very least tainted, if not broken. So to me, I think part of it is nuance maybe in how it's expressed, but I also think Part of it is like, hey, you remember these values that we all claim to believe in? Yeah. In heightened situations, it's in scary situations, it's very, or or in, in morally difficult situations, it's very easy to lose track of them. And I think a big part of what I'm trying to do is kind of remind people that those values still exist. You wrote a Twitter thread on November 10th that was a list of people who were taking advantage of the current moment. And mm. I really wish everyone could read it because it points out all the bad actors on all sides of the conflict. And I'm going to link it in the show notes. Since you wrote that, have you seen any other examples of people looking to use the conflict for their own ends that you want to put a spotlight on? Sure. You know, I actually just posted about that today. I think one of the really, really hard parts of these discussions um, right now is around anti-Semitism. Um, it's definitely right. true also for Islamophobia, but anti-Semitism as a topic, I think is qualitatively and quantitatively different than Islamophobia in a, in a few ways. I think one of the big ways is that anti-Semitism, unlike Islamophobia, in theory is a bipartisan toxic topic, whereas transphobia, racism, Islamophobia, misogyny, <laughs> I could go on yeah. and on. Are, are largely polarized, right? Like right. anti-Semitism for a long time, and it's starting to change, but for a long time was, you know, very uh, taboo, at least overt anti-Semitism. So I think that has, that's in theory a good thing. In practice, of course it's good no matter what, but in practice what it also means is that it becomes a very effective tool and weapon to wield against people that you want to hurt. Right. And so right now is a really 
difficult time because there is very real anti-Semitism happening on the left, very real anti-Semitism happening among anti-Israel people, whatever uh, denomination or whatever uh, political affiliation they have. But there is also a very real system to amplify and distort the anti-Semitism that exists and to make it seem essentially number one zero-sum, as if the existential danger exists solely on the left and that the left is defined uh, by widespread anti-Semitism is irredeemable and is an existential danger. So these things are like the big messages we're hearing about the left these days. Right. And those messages are being spread purposefully and inorganically, meaning there is a group of powerful people who, and, and also just people vested in this topic, who really want to shift the dynamic away from the right and also to shift, and, and depending on who it is, also use it to support Israel. And especially becomes more and more true as, as the topic of Israel itself becomes polarized between left and right. You wrote a great piece about that, actually, and I was going to ask you about that. You made some absolutely fascinating connections about this that a lot of people don't necessarily make. And one of these is the article you wrote for The Daily Beast in March of 2022 entitled The Right Selective Outrage on Anti-Semitism is a Scam, where you observed that pretty much anything you wrote calling out anti-Semitism on the left seems to have tripped that right-wing propaganda machine that amplifies it and boosts it, whereas when you criticize this on the right, you didn't get that same level of amplification. And it led you to realize that the right-wing media complex had far more reach and power to drive some of these narratives than most mm. people realize. Do you think that as a society, as a people, we're any closer to being able to see these tactics for what they are? I do. There's also an overcorrection that happens, especially around Israel where it becomes like, well, anytime I talk about Israel, I'm critical of Israel. I'm, I, it's not possible for me to be anti-Semitic as long as I don't name Jews, which is just nonsense. I mean, any anytime we talk about Soros, conspiracy theories, or we talk about, you know, any dog whistle, a great replacement, mm -hmm. you know, all these things, all these topics are essentially like, until they're very overt, they use code words. They're not overt. Right. And plenty of people believe in them, but don't think they're anti-Semitic. So... Right. The whole globalist thing. We're not really talking about the Jews when right. you say that. We're talking about the globalists. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And and the truth is, you know, a lot of the audience of like Fox News thinks that, but they're still believing in an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So that's true about Israel as well. It's just not as, you know, it, it, again, it has to do with amplification more than and focus and judgment than it does with, with the larger judgments about the left. So that's something that's really important to keep in mind. So the truth is that there is this element that is like an overcorrection. On the other hand, uh, you're absolutely right. I think it's very good that people are catching on. I do believe that they are. I do believe that, you know, there was kind of this both sides complex that was not just specific to anti-Semitism, but was a, a larger topic that I think really, really detracted from our you know, really like helped elevate Trump, helped justify a lot of the racism and anti-Semitism we were seeing. And I think now people are much more savvy than they were in the past. And hopefully we can keep educating them on this because the thing is that while they are more aware of it, the ground is always shifting. The territory right. is always moving and the code words are always evolving. One thing 
that we've seen in the information domain of this whole conflict is the rise of some really obvious controlled opposition. The people like Jackson Hinkle and Stop Zionist Hate, who are selling a narrative that people want to hear, but they're selling it from a really bad faith and dishonest place, and frequently using inaccurate and misleading information and footage to do this. And this is another case of how do we get people to be more discerning about the sources that they get and share information from? So I do think it's important for people to be discerning. Um, one of them is to is to look at the person's account before you share it, um, especially if you're seeing them a lot, especially if a lot of people are spreading their stuff a lot. It's very, very important. I think that's probably the main way. But the thing is that even though it's true, I tend to not get on the bandwagon of saying like, all right, this is how you prevent it from happening. I do think there are tools and resources out there for people to learn how to do that. I think part of it is just like critical thinking as well, being able to just realize when someone's speaking in a very kind of extremist way and that kind of stuff. But the real core issue at hand is that we have social media ecosystems that lend themselves to elevate these people and that is hugely problematic. Essentially, Stab Zionist Hate, which is uh, very clearly a white nationalist group that's posing as progressive. Right. Because they're realizing right now that using the word Zionist is, is one that they can get away with. Right. That is something that, yes, if you dig enough and you listen to the right people, you make sure to follow disinfo experts, that kind of thing, you will know to do that. But the truth is like 99% of people are not going to do it. 90% best. Right. So really, like, honestly, at the end of the day, the responsibility falls on the social media companies. They need to be able to filter these people out. They, you know, this account would never have been able to launch and have such success if it wasn't connected to Lucas Gage, to Hinkle, as you mentioned, and some others. It wasn't a coincidence that happened to take off. Um, and that was because there was an ecosystem of neo-Nazis and, and white nationalists who were able to elevate it. Yep. So that's that's like an ecosystem issue, not a and a moderation issue. That's not a people are not being discerning enough issue. Or it, it is, but not not in a way that if we educated everyone, it would take enormous resources compared to social media companies just doing their job. So that's why, for example, I you know I'm leading a movement to to make sure that big companies are not putting ads on X slash Twitter mm -hmm. because ultimately this is this is a site that's promoting hate. And we need to really address that in a serious way. And we also need to encourage people to leave. Right. And I saw that you wrote a piece earlier this year for Forward entitled Elon Musk is the most dangerous anti-Semite in America, in which you state that Musk's history of amplifying anti-Semites and anti-Semitic rhetoric on Twitter, along with his control of the social media platform itself, make him the loudest and most powerful anti-Semite in American history. It's a pretty accurate statement, and the proof of that is in the way that he managed to outdo himself today on this one. He literally endorsed Great Replacement Theory, which uh, is the same thing that drove the Tree of Life shooter outside of Pittsburgh to shoot up the synagogue a few years ago. It's been a regular feature on the Tucker Carlson show. This is the real deep end, and Elon quote unquote, called this the actual truth today. So it's really hard to see how, like you said, this isn't just an outright hate site at this point. And why are we still here to some big extent? 
Yeah, that's that's a, a big question. Why are we still here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, he is an anti-Semite. He is empowering anti-Semites. The moderation team has been destroyed. Even if there was some internal team that could take care of this, they're not there. Right. You know, so I could go on and on. The you know, Nazis have been reinstated. <laughs> I could, yeah. really, I could spend all day like, going on this. But the question of should we stay, should we leave, it's getting more and more questionable. You know, my position has always been that, you know, kind of similar to, to before, where I think individual actions, of course, make a difference. But I think the macro approach in my mind is much more effective, meaning groups of motivated leaders and others joining together to put pressure in ways that will have more of an effect than just people leaving. So point being, if you get people to leave, that's one the one of the ways that's effective is, is not that they're losing users. The real issue there is that they're losing revenue because the more people leave, mm-hmm. the fewer people are clicking on an ad and thus the fewer people are bringing in revenue for the company. This is how, of course, so many social media companies make money. In theory, you know, Twitter is trying to make money from subscriptions, but the vast, vast majority of their revenue comes from ads. Right. So my belief has always been, or at least for me, I don't I don't necessarily suggest this to everyone. For me personally and for other people who care about this, it's like, let's scream really loudly on Twitter uh, how dangerous it is, how dangerous Elon Musk is, and put pressure on advertisers to drop them. It's becoming more difficult to justify not staying on the site. I think it's becoming kind of like a moral and internal moral decision someone has to make, like how long am I going to be here? I think it's in particular important for journalists and media companies, other people that are considered sources of truth. The thing about this, the reason being that if they stay on the site, they essentially are sending a message that this site is useful for discerning information. And at the end of the day, besides being a hate site, the site is a disinformation site. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much disinformation on that site, a ton more than other platforms, and it's taking off. And you know, we're only at the beginning of the process. So, I really think like there's not just a moral responsibility, a strategic responsibility to say, you know, we're going to be on the platforms that you can rely on as a source of truth, because otherwise. We're just one drop in the ecosystem compared to all these other large accounts, larger accounts that are spreading mm. a ton of misinformation. Right. And it's it's almost impossible in a lot of cases, like, you know, I've done this for a while, but this particular information environment we're in right now, it's almost impossible to tell what's real and what isn't. And we're, we've talked to some of the fact checkers, people like Cheyenne from BBC Verify, and they're just overwhelmed. Right now, they're just up to it every single day. They can't get ahead of any of this stuff. We've got people repurposing footage from you know Syria in 2012, passing it off as current day footage of Gaza, getting thousands upon thousands of retweets and likes on this and getting paid for it. And it just seems like, you know, like you said, there's no moderation team that's bothering to do anything if they're still around. And it becomes really hard to bail out the ocean with with a spoon. This is really difficult some days. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think I think everything you're saying is true. I think um social media by definition, especially by who runs it, is important. It's it's important to always keep these things in, to a certain extent in perspective in the sense that Twitter 
pre-Musk was always a shitty platform in terms of what you right. would trust on there. Facebook, similar, you know, Facebook had a massive scandal around this, um, as we know. So there's always been a problem with misinformation. The problem now, as you as you rightly point out, is that there's not even a pretense that they care about that. Yeah, yeah. Quite the opposite, right? And not only that, like you mentioned, someone who is good at providing outrage bait, and even if it's, it's disinformation, is likely going to make a lot of money uh, through the site, especially if they have a large audience, or at least some money, you know? And so they're incentivized. Mm-hmm. And, and so outrage is far more incentivized. Again, this is a common issue in social media, but essentially what Musk is doing is amplifying these problems instead of lessening them. And I think, you know, we're seeing the results of that now. We're seeing the results of that during the war. And, you know, I'm very, I think anyone who's paying attention to this is is very concerned about what's going to happen during the election. Oh, yeah. The next year of this is just going to get uglier and uglier. I think it's it's terrifying to think of what the election season is going to be like. I mean, it was bad enough last time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Elon didn't own the platform then. Exactly. So exactly. I find myself kind of thinking, oh, boy, this is just, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because I think the important thing to remember about these, it's sad, it's difficult, and it's scary and all these things, but fascists don't give up right away. And what we're seeing now, in addition to us becoming more savvy and Democrats, all these things. Fascists are also evolving, and they're really, really mm-hmm. spending a lot of energy making sure that they succeed. Yeah, some of the the same fascists who were out there in 2016 and in 2020 are now doing some of the same stuff. One guy in particular who was an absolute Nazi is now claiming to be pro-Israeli. And it's <laughs> really, really fascinating to watch because you start to realize this guy's about chaos. Yeah, it's not about trying to make anything else happen. It's about, let's see if we can make people mad. Let's see if we can make things worse. And the platform itself, with the way Musk has it set up now, just absolutely lends itself to that. Mm-hmm. One thing also, I mean, you mentioned that fascists tend to be incredibly persistent. They have more of a long game, it seems, a lot of the time, and they don't mind putting a lot of work into it to make it happen in five years or 10 years or 40 years, like we just saw with the Supreme Court not too long ago, you had a piece that you wrote called The Enemy is Authoritarianism. And you talk about how both sides in the conflict between Israel and Palestine are essentially authoritarian. The current Israeli government under Netanyahu is best described as authoritarian, and Hamas is absolutely an authoritarian trip. And you break down the stakes and the sides pretty well, and it's something we've tried to do our best to cover on this side of things as well. Why are we seeing such a global rise in the amount of authoritarianism, do you think? Oh boy, that's a big one. Honestly, I think that, and I think that as Others have pointed out, you know, I think free societies, uh, or at least freer societies, have been, to a certain extent, exceptions in human history. And, right. You know, we're, we're just starting to figure out how you organize something like that. And I think the other question of how do you make that sustainable is more difficult and not as thought through and is compromised by, you know, unfettered capitalism where 
you know, we're just seeing the results of it in America where you have this massive disparity in power. And then once those people are in power, they don't want to have a fair game anymore. And so we're just kind of seeing the entire process, regulations break down, et cetera. And then people, rather than people becoming more committed to democracy, they become less because, you know, big part of what happened in 2016 and 2020 is, you know, there's a ton of polls about this, but essentially the faith in democracy was diving. And you would think with the rise of authoritarianism, people would care more about democracy. And the truth was, it was just not the case. And it's really something that we're seeing, as you mentioned, I think it's so important to keep in mind that this is not something just in America. This is a global topic. Mm -hmm. You know, the root cause, I think is, I don't think that's an easy question. I think the the, the thing I can say more in the recent history is that it's very clear that this is a rising movement that is coordinated between different groups and is uh, preying on the weaknesses of individual societies. And I think the things that could keep democracies more stable are starting to break down, which makes it much harder for them to stay stable. Right. Because it seems like we're seeing it all over the place, but we're seeing a different version of it depending on where you're seeing it. The version that you saw for a while in Brazil under Bolsonaro doesn't necessarily look like the version that you saw under Orban in Hungary. But these people all talk and these people all compare notes and they trade recipes back and forth, as it were. So it's almost like the flat pack version of authoritarianism, as I've heard it said that yeah. they've got this model kit that they can pull out and put together like an Ikea couch or something and make it work in whatever environment they're trying to make it work in. And <laughs> definitely to what you said, it seems like the social supports are one of the things that can keep it from happening. And the more of that you take away, the easier it is to get people to come along and buy into this, especially when they promise to make it better. Yeah, I think, you know, as we're talking, I'm also thinking more about that article and what I was saying there. You know, I think the truth is that people tend to really want a sense of strong meaning and belonging in in their lives. Right. And I think one of the problems with, you know, it's definitely an issue with American culture, but in general, I would argue that a lot of liberal democracies, ironically, their success can also make them vulnerable because what ends up happening is that the focus is very much on individual freedom and less on collective belonging. And so I think that is a big part of this, um, especially on the grassroots level as opposed to on the big level, where, where I think you're 100% right about these leaders. But I think these leaders are also partly successful because they are tapping into something that just like a cult leader um, can tap into you know, why, why do these, you know, when we see these cult documentaries, it always seems like the, or Trump is such a great example of this, where mm-hmm. these guys seem like cartoons. Like, why would yeah. you ever follow someone like that? And and I remember that in 2016, everyone was like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. And it was clear he was speaking to these people on a level that they'd never been spoken to before. Yeah. Like he was saying things to these people. It seemed like that they'd been waiting to hear yeah. almost all their lives. And the way that they were reacting to him seemed very much like, this is the guy, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And, you know, there was the whole God Emperor Trump thing, which was funny, but at the same time, this is how they were treating it. And I think a lot of it was because they had just never, a lot of his voters had never been talked to like that before by anybody in authority. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. 
I think you combine that with kind of the existential fear that obviously Obama had brought up in some way in people. Um, you combine that with you know increased diversity in general, um, increased acceptance of all queer people, you know the legalization of gay marriage, all these things that were kind of happening around you know the election of Donald Trump. You know I think when you combine this sort of existential fear with a leader who is amping up that fear and also saying the only solution is me, not this system or this approach or this thing. They are saying everything you're scared of is 100% true and even worse. Mm -hmm. And then saying there's really no solution. Things are absolutely hopeless. I mean, this is what's really interesting about extremism. It really preys on convincing people that things are so hopeless that the only answer is like a savior from above. Yeah. You know, I think Donald Trump was a genius at doing this. I think, unfortunately, people see him as stupid. I mean, he he's dumb in some ways, but he's a genius in other ways. And I think in manipulating people, definitely on a mass level, he was extremely effective. And you see this with other authoritarians. You see it in Israel where the existential fear of Palestinians becomes a useful tool. Yeah, I think you can make an argument at this point that Donald Trump is the greatest salesman in history. And <laughs> it's kind of jacked to say that, but at the same time, you think about it, this is a man who went from selling himself as a real estate mogul to selling himself as the president, to selling himself as like the savior of all of these yeah. people. It's amazing. And you get the idea that like he's not talking to me when he has these speeches. He's figured out how to push a certain subset of the population's buttons, and he really pushes their buttons to the point where I think there's a lot of people that aren't going to vote for anyone else at this point. And you see that in the Republican polling. It's kind of nuts that they yeah. get polls coming out that say any number of these people would probably be a more competitive candidate than Trump, yeah. but they can't get more than 10% of the base yeah. at this point to buy into the idea of them running. And it's it really says something to just how thoroughly hooked he's got these people. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because like every poll, not, not just with Trump, but like so many of the extremist policies that he pushed, like there's always this, like, no matter how monstrous um, and no matter how much everyone can seemingly agree on how disgusting something is or something he did is, there's always this, like you, like you mentioned, like this kind of baseline thirty percent that are always yeah. ready to jump in his support, and that's amazing to see. You know, I remember also. I'm trying to remember what the what the law was. There was some policy that I wish I remembered what it was. Some sort. I think it was uh, an attack on Iran or something like that. That right. that it seemed like Trump was considering, and up until that point. Republicans had been completely opposed to it, like Republican voters. And the moment he even uttered like an interest in doing this, the poll they completely flipped yeah. to support. It was amazing in like a day, you know. I mean shocking, uh -huh. but the leader says we need to do this, we gotta go do this. Everybody has yeah. to get on the same page. And it it's insane that like you have this core of people. And I found myself thinking, like, what if they somehow managed to nominate a DeSantis? These people are gonna stay home. These people aren't going to come out for that, I don't think. I, I think that they really feel it's like Trump or nobody. No, I mean, I think COVID was this, like, I hope a wake-up call. I think it was, where people are on ventilators and, like, about to die, and they're still in denial about COVID. 
and mm-hmm. still claiming that not they're not in data, this isn't real and all these things, or there it was because of the vaccine and on and on. It's something that is I think most of us, even who had like kind of a dim view of what was happening, did not imagine happening. And it did. Yeah. It happened multiple times. And you heard stories about family members who would, you know, get upset that that, you know, these these people were getting taken care of and, you know, so many crazy stories. And and I think you know, partly there's this quantitative 30% and then there's the qualitative stories where you kind of realize there is nothing barring something really extreme. And even then, obviously, a global pandemic didn't do it. Nope. You know, we kind of hope people will wake up and I don't think that's so healthy. I think a lot of those 30% are going to go to their grave, you know, convinced of everything they lived through. And, and to me, um, that really... Um, it's very sad, but it also um, makes me also really grateful that I haven't fallen into that because um, and also reminds me how important it is to be vigilant. Yeah, to be vigilant and stay up on it because, you know, we've had enough experts on extremism come talk to us. And the one thing they say is, you know, it's not about how smart you are. It's about catching you at that right, right. point in that right time. And, right. you know, if that happens, a lot of the time you see some people who are pretty sharp and they end up going down a pretty bad path. And a lot of the time it doesn't take very long to get there once you're there. Yeah. One other thing that wanted to go over a little bit. This is something you've been talking about in the last couple of days where you talk about how there was some footage going around that people were misinterpreting what was being chanted and bringing that kind of stuff up. You may think that you're fighting anti-Semitism somehow by calling this out, but in your words, it was more of a case of you're just scaring people. You're just cranking up the paranoia level that's already very, very high amongst you know Jewish people in this country. How do you convince people that this is a really bad idea and no matter how helpful you think you're being by pointing this stuff out by exposing this kind of stuff that all you're really doing here is turning up the temperature and causing real harm in a lot of cases yeah i honestly i haven't fully cracked that one i hope i hope one day we can i mean i think that it's really hard i guess the reason i say it like that is um the reactions to that and to in general me pointing out some of that stuff has been really depressing because I think it's 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 hard because I think what ends up happening for good reason, for some for good reason, not for good, others for good, for not good reason, but people are really scared. And so when you say stuff, especially if it's not worded well, but, but either way, if you say stuff like this is spreading panic, we have to be careful, you know, it's very easy to interpret that as your fears are not real. And your fears are not justified. And the truth is their fears are real and their fears are mm-hmm. justified. And so I think, first of all, I, I don't think everyone is going to hear it no matter what. Um, I think one of the things that's really been powerful for me recently has been, you know, I think the Trump years were really this kind of reminder that you have to stay tough and strong and you can't just let being nice and getting along with people distract you from your morals, you know? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about this moment is I feel like that strategy, while still helpful for sure when it comes to fascist leaders and authoritarians, people like Bibi, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, I think is really not helpful at all when you're talking about 
legitimate fears of bigotry and people getting attacked. You know, you know this. This is not imagined. This is not you know a theory. Oh no. And so I think that there needs to be a way to express this stuff in a way that is empathetic yeah, and that acknowledges the fear. And I think that when what I've seen is, you know, I had another thing I wrote recently where I think that when people dismiss very real fears, even in those situations that are genuinely fake and genuinely made up and spread by propagandists, when you try to say your fears aren't real, you are also doing something that's not helpful. And so... I think that this moment, especially when it comes to Jews and Muslims who are directly affected by what's happening in Israel, we have to speak more empathetically because this is not about being strong against the leader. This is not about being strong against you know, people who have bought into, or at least for a lot of them, haven't fully bought into like an authoritarian mindset. Right. So I think you know, we're just talking about scared people. And, and yeah. I think that until we acknowledge that and focus on that and, and find a way to do that while also maybe being really strong about the propagandists and the people in charge, I think that's really important. I think that tends to come to the core of how we deal with authoritarianism in general, where we focus more on leaders and the truly, for lack of a better word, evil people, as opposed to the people on the ground and the, like who are buying into everything. Right. One of the most prevalent examples I see lately is there's a white supremacist group and they have a thing for picketing at Disney World. They've done this a bunch lately with signs, with swastikas, with all kinds of hate imagery. And they have a goal in doing this and that's to get their website address on TV. And that's to get themselves like their propaganda in front of the greatest audience possible. And it's real tough to draw that sort of distinction. And, you know, I tell people, yeah, it's scary. There's Nazis at Disney World. That's not good. That's a real bad sign. But not give them that coverage that they are out there trying to get when they're doing this kind of thing, not putting their website on the news, as it were, because that's the whole reason they're out there. Right. So how do you say that to people in an empathetic way that like, yeah, this is really scary. These people shouldn't be here and these people shouldn't be doing this without turning it into a fear trip. Because there are so many people that every time they see them, it's like wash, rinse, repeat. You have to take a whole bunch of pictures and blast it all over Twitter. Oh, look, it's those guys again. And, you know, they can put seven guys up on a bridge with a banner and make national news doing it. So for them, it's this incredibly cost-effective strategy to get their propaganda out in front of people. It's really easy. So I'm, I'm there with you looking for a way to make people feel heard that, yeah, yeah, this is bad and this shouldn't be happening, but you don't give them what they want. Don't give them that sense of we went out there and we accomplished what we want and getting really upset and freaking out about it is definitely more likely to give them what they want on this subject. Yeah, and I think also what's hard about it is there has to be a calculation made at some point where we're kind of balancing what is the gain of not addressing it versus right. the gain of, of, of addressing it, right? Because I think when the hatred becomes widespread enough, then we're no longer at the stage of like, we can't amplify them. We're at the stage of, okay, they're so big that me talking about it is not going to change it. My, what I can do right. as someone who's commenting on this is 
to educate people about it and help arm them in some way ideologically. And so I think that calculation needs to be made. And then, you know, I think um, there's been, you know, obviously there's so many discussions about how to do this, but I think one of the other things is also like, especially around, let's say, the examples you give, is I think there are a few things that can be done that do talk about it. I do think, especially when it's more widespread, especially when there are leaders allowing it to happen, it needs to be discussed in some way. So I would say always contextualizing it, always pointing out here are the problems, here's why it, like everything you're describing, I think is really important. And also even noting like, you know, don't just amplify them without comment. Like there needs to be some sort of context right. you're bringing to this that explains it. Because I think that can be useful and helpful. Um, and also, yes, spreads the word about them, but also helps minimize the danger of that. Mm -hmm. We're just at this point of rising white nationalism, neo-Nazism, all these things. These are real things. Um, so I think that is really important. And I think then calling out lead, again, I would emphasize the need to not just focus on these random psychopaths, but yeah. on the leaders who empower them. And that has a lot to do with Republicans, right? Influencers and go on and on. And when you see that in a lot of cases, there's not too much separation between some of the campaign staffs of some of these Republicans and the people who are very into like a Nick Fuentes, there's been a lot of realization lately that certain congressional staffers tend to have groiper accounts going in the background yeah. that you find right. yourself thinking like, you can't do this. You can't have it both ways. You can't, at this point, I don't think, be legitimate and still buy into that stuff. Yeah. But they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> And it's terrible. It's frightening. And I'm worried about that next generation of young congressional staffers because it's, man, <laughs> it's pretty grim. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, I have like just some thoughts on that. One one is that I think, the, you know, one of the, the focuses I also try to bring is like, let's look at the larger dynamics here. So one, one thing I wrote recently about the neo-Nazi marches was, so this was happening in Florida. I was saying, what does it say about something like, what does it say about this culture that trans people are escaping from Florida because of the the laws that are being passed there? Yeah. And neo-Nazis are walking without any, you know, any problem. Um, and I think that kind of call out of like larger dynamics is, is more helpful just because it's like, okay, well, let's look at how, what this actually means on a larger level. And the right. larger level is that trans people are being targeted, neo-Nazis are being empowered. I mean, that's one aspect of that. So I think that's important. And then in terms of what you're saying, the concern is, you know, one thing that I think is, I remember uh, during the 2020 protests, um, I called up a friend of mine who's this, uh, he's a civil rights leader. He's also a, um, he's just a great commentator. He's a community builder in New York. I was living in New York at the time and just seeing kind of what was happening with the police brutality and everything on the streets with the protesters. And I asked him, I was like, I was like, how do you have hope in moments like this? Right, right. Because I was just feeling completely hopeless. And I was like, how could you, as a you know, as a black person and a leader who's witnessed so much horrible things and is still fighting for them, how do you have hope? And he told me, it was something that really stuck with me. He goes, because they always try to take more than they should. And I thought that was such a genius. It wasn't like a, just a random idea around hope. It was like kind of a law of extreme, of, of these fascists and, and these racists and all these things where he's saying like, this is a dynamic that happens throughout history where 
these people are by definition greedy and by definition overreaching and by definition, um, you know, want to take more than they can. You know, we see that with Trump and all his lackeys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think these, we're starting to see, I hope, you know, it was obviously we're on a razor's edge in so many ways, but we are seeing a lot of signs of the results of that, meaning creating hope, I would say, in the sense of like all the elections are going Democrats way these days. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of eyes being opened to these problems. You know, if Trump gets elected, we'll have another discussion about that. Right, right, right. I think, you know, but I do think we're seeing a tide shift. I hope it continues, but I think either way, you know, I think it's so important to keep this hope in mind. So important. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, you know, thinking about it like that, you know, I was going to ask that question of, you know, what are some of the things that you do to give yourself hope and sanity when things are this crazy? But thinking of it like that, it's like, yeah, you're dealing with some pretty awful people here. And one thing these people do have a tendency to do is get a little more than they should, bite off more than they can chew. And the one thing I think we saw that was somewhat underrated that happened in 2017 once these people all took power was they all then had to deal with each other. Yes. You know, at first they didn't necessarily know how crappy the rest of that crew was, but once they all started (laughs) having to deal with each other on a regular basis, it was nothing but infighting after that. You saw some of the most vicious infighting and we know they throw fake fights, but it wasn't all fake. Yeah. At least some of this stuff was real. And I think if they had actually gotten along a lot better we'd been we'd have been screwed but as a result of the fact that they're all just god awful and terrible they (laughs) didn't have the greatest time working with each other and they spent the next several years denouncing each other and talking smack about each other and saying horrible things like if you go back and you look at like everybody that attended unite the right that was absolutely the high point for those guys because the minute that was over they were all just tearing each other apart Whose fault was this? Yes. This was a mess. This failed. Whose fault was this? And there's been nothing but recriminations about it ever since. And it's beautiful. It's just <laughs> great to watch. I'm very yeah. happy about that. Best of luck to all sides here. I hope you all get what you want out of this and you know tear right. each other to shreds. So how can people support you in the work that you're doing? Oh, well, thank you. You know, I was I just wanted to give one more thought. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. No problem. Things. No problem. Yeah, um, please do. Please do. We need all the hope we can get around yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so um so it's actually two thoughts so one is i think you're absolutely right and it's and what's um, also fun to witness is you know as these cases move forward around trump you know thank god the government to a certain extent is um finally dealing with him in the way that mm-hmm. they should um we're seeing all the witnesses all these people who are theoretically super loyal to trump are completely folding and i don't think it just has to do with the pressure of the government i think if this had been a few years ago or something like that, I don't know if they would have folded so quickly. And I think it has to do with them witnessing how the loyalty only goes one way. They're, yeah. they're not going to get any support from Trump. And I think ultimately they're like, okay, they're just making a self-interested calculation. And I think that's that gives me a lot of hope because it shows, it shows how authoritarianism in the big picture is not sustainable. It's kind of a bigger question of, okay, well, what damage is it going to cause and how long is it going to last and all these things. But this kind of extreme authoritarianism in particular is not sustainable. If we're thinking about the sustainability of democracy, I mean, you just look at the history of these, ex- these especially recent fascistic governments, they, they're mm-hmm. not like super sustainable. So that's one thing. The other thing is, 
You know, I think uh, a really important thing to keep in mind, and one of the things that really gives me a lot of hope is when, you know, when I think of like my Hasidic community and I think, uh, or my former Hasidic community, I think of, you know, stories around cults and extremism and all these things. One of the defining features of them, not only are the people themselves not stupid or whatever, they're also, they often, one of the big ways they're manipulated is that they're good intentions get manipulated. This, I'm not trying to minimize oh, right. in any no. sense the bigotry right, and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, they believe that they're doing something really good. Mm-hmm. They believe, you know, not all, you know, they're not all Nick Fuentes. You know, there are no. people that like want good in the world and, and what ends up happening, like I mentioned, there's all these dynamics, bigotry and uh, manipulation and feelings of hopelessness, all these ingredients. But ultimately, people want to be good and they want to do good things. The vast majority of them, I should say. And that to me always gives me hope because it's, you know, we're seeing again the results of years and years of evil people being in charge. I think that has a lot to do with, with the tide shifting as well. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that, you know, we'll get there. I really, I'm, I'm still optimistic. I think that we have seen some real wins, definitely on the part of the Democrats, on the part of the left lately. We, are seeing as a result of some of the overreach that they've had that we're winning elections again and we may continue to win these elections as long as we do what we're supposed to do. And it's really starting to feel like maybe people have gotten the message that you got to wake up and fight. You got to wake up and, and push back on this every chance and it's not going to be fun and it's not going to happen in, you know, two year cycles. They've had a lot of years to build some of this stuff where nobody was pushing back all that hard outside of a few people in marginalized communities. And now it's like everybody gets it that, hey, guess what? It's going to be all of us eventually. So right. we, right. we got to get got to get fighting. Yeah, I think it's very unfortunate that it took something like losing the right to abortion yeah. for that to wake people up. But it did, you know. I'm sad that it took that. I don't think it needed to be that. And hopefully, it won't be even worse, you know. And hopefully, well, well, like you're saying, this this snowball will continue. So, how can people support you in the work that you're doing? Yes. All right. Um, so, you know, right now, I think I'm I'm uh, I've been recovering a lot, like I mentioned, from this trauma and different things. So the good news is, my writing is really getting back into shape, and so. One of the best ways I would love, you know, for people to sub- read my writing through my Substack in particular, um, ladnaharai.substack.com. And you can follow me on platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, uh, basically all of them are Alad Naharai. So, okay, yeah, I would love to be in touch with anyone that's interested in this. Definitely. We'll definitely put some links in there for that. So, Elad, thank you. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and go over some of this stuff. Your writing is wonderful. Keep doing what you do because it's really, really needed at this point in the game. We absolutely need your voice. So please stick with it. Thank you so much. I'm I'm honored. No problem. You have a great rest of your day, okay? You too. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. 
We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.